0: We are headed down the home stretch of our series on the book of Acts. And so, if you have your Bibles, you can grab them and turn in them to Acts chapter 27. As we've walked through this book, it has just been an incredible, beautiful journey. God's met us in so many ways. And as you're turning to Acts 27, I want to tell you a story about a journey that I took this past week that was considerably less beautiful. Let me tell you about it. It all starts at Disney World, right? That's where it always starts. Uh, I was at Disney World this past week, and for me, the highlight of any trip to Disney is the pilgrimage that I make every visit to Space Mountain. Okay, where I'm magically transported not just to outer space, but back to the 1980s, where five-year-old Josh just ruled Space Mountain. Man, I love that thing; it was awesome. So we're 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 there. We figured out the whole fast pass thing. We're well hydrated. We're fast passed. We go in. We skip through all the silly people who waited in line. We get right on our space cars. And uh, we're ready to go. We're taxiing up the first big incline, ready to just be launched out into unknown, glorious wonders of outer space when suddenly everything stops. Oh, I know, it's horrible. Listen, wait it gets, so, it gets so much worse. So we're sitting there on the incline for about, it was probably about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It felt like three hours. Because we're listening to the, the message, please keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, just on repeat over and over and over again. And eventually, we're thinking, man, like, we're thinking, we're praying, we're praying that we're going to get it fixed, we're going to be able to go. Uh, and eventually, the lights come on, and by the way, that's never a good sign, and Space Mountain is far less magical when the lights are on, <laughs> because you see that it hasn't been clean since I first wrote it in 1980-whatever. Anyway, and so a cast member comes out and they make everyone get off the ride and exit with our heads just hung in despair. And so needless to say, everyone's good time is ruined. My dreams for reliving my childhood were dashed. Uh, There was a five-year-old kid in the car in front of us. It was his first roller coaster ride. He'd waited 45 minutes in line. We all just gathered around and prayed for him. It was so sad. As we're walking out, we're asking the cast members, like, what gives, man? What happened? Why do we have to get off the ride? And the news we heard could not have been worse. Now, it wasn't like, now, don't, this isn't going to take like a dark turn or anything like that. Everyone's fine. It's not like human tragedy. But here's what happened. Somebody on the ride had taken out a selfie stick. Do you guys know what a selfie stick is, by the way? It's like the thing that you have and you put your phone in it that you can get a good picture of your, it's the work. Don't worry about it. It's terrible. Someone had taken a selfie stick out in the middle of Space Mountain and was like flinging it around and they hit something on the ride and caused it to break and so they shut it down and everyone's good time was ruined. Now, the journey itself was a failure. It was an unmitigated disaster, but there was an important lesson for all of us. We all learned a valuable lesson, didn't we? And that lesson is this. If you must have a selfie stick, And by the way, I would submit to you, you do not need a selfie stick. But if you must have a selfie stick, don't take it out on Space Mountain, okay? (laughs) Never do it. Important lesson. That's not even in the text. That's free. But the point of that story is this. Even the most disastrous journeys can teach us things that are really important. And in this morning's text, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to go on a disastrous journey of his own, one that's far more serious than anything that we experienced on Space Mountain And what we're going to see in this text are some great lessons that we can learn from his experience. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read all of chapter 27. It's a lot of text. We'll take a couple of breaks along the way for comments. But it's always good to hear from the Word of God. But before we read it, we acknowledge that we cannot know the truth of God's Word unless he condescends, unless he opens our eyes, unless he reveals it to us. We need his help. And so let's ask him for it. Would you pray with me, please? Our great God, you are the one who shines the light of your truth into the dark places of this world, into the dark places of our hearts. In your light, we see light. And so we ask this morning that you would unseal our hearts, unveil our eyes, reveal Jesus Christ to us in all of his saving glory, so that we might hope in him, so that we might be found in him, so that we might find our sufficiency. In him. Spirit, help us, we pray. In Jesus' good name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 27. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone, Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, <clears throat> near which was the city of Lycia. Let's stop for a minute there. I just want to recap briefly. Uh, and if you remember, Paul has been under arrest ...for about the last two years. He was arrested in the temple in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 21. There's really no charges against him. Uh, and the, the, the state isn't really able to make a case against Paul. So his case is basically going nowhere. He's sitting in jail completely stalled out for two years. And as a result, Paul decides to exercise his right... ...as a Roman citizen to make his appeal to Caesar. And so the Roman authorities place Paul on a ship leaving Caesarea... And he's entrusted to the charge of Julius the centurion. But Paul is not alone. He's got a couple of traveling companions with him. One is Aristarchus and the other is Luke. And these two men uh, probably were accompanying Paul for the purpose of feeding him and caring for his needs. In that day, if you were a prisoner of Rome, they did not give you food. They didn't care for your needs. A family member had to travel with you and accompany you and do that for you. That's probably why Aristarchus and Luke are with him. And this ship leaves port and they're sailing along the eastern uh, coast of the Mediterranean on the coast of Asia. They're sort of hugging the coast, making their way around with great difficulty. And they arrive in Fair Havens, which is on the southeastern side of the island of Crete. We'll pick it back up in verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, "'Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss.' Not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So they've they've docked at Fair Havens, which sounds like a nice place, right? Paul says, fair havens is is good, let's spend the winter there. And he has good reason to say this. Remember, Paul's an experienced traveler, and he's pointing out the fact that it's getting late in the year. It says that the, the fast was already over, which means the Day of Atonement and the fast that took place on that day had already taken place. And if you trace this back on the calendar, this is about A.D. 59 or 60, and the Day of Atonement would have been October the 5th. So it's very late in autumn. And if you know anything about this time, you know they would not sail. They would not travel in wintertime because the conditions were were far too dangerous. And so Paul speaks up. He says that uh, we shouldn't travel, but ultimately it's decided that Fairhavens isn't a suitable place for them to, to port for the winter. And so they decide to set sail and try to make it to Phoenix to spend the winter there. They basically just want to sail around the island of Crete to the other side. And as is often the case, when people don't listen to what the Apostle Paul says... It's going to go really bad for them. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, we began the, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned these guys find themselves in a very bad way they hit a violent storm coming off the land uh, the word that's translated from the greek uh, in our bibles a tempestuous wind that word in the greek is typhonikos which is the word that we get the word typhoon from they're in the driving wind and rain they're being pulled off their course around the island and out into the sea they have no visibility they have no idea where they are and so they begin to do all the things that sailors do when the only thing on your mind is to try to survive a storm like this. The situation is as bleak as it can possibly be. And Paul speaks up in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Paul speaks words of comfort and hope to these men. And sure enough, soon they begin to see some very positive developments. The water is getting less deep, and so they decide to drop their anchors. It's the middle of the night and they're going to pray for daybreak. But this all doesn't happen without a little bit of of chicanery as some of the sailors sneak off to the back of the ship, and they're going to try to get into the boat that the ship would pull behind it and escape. And Paul sees it and shuts that down in a hurry, right? He says, they can't leave or we're all going to die. Plus, I've got snacks. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all, 276 persons, in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat, into the sea. We're almost done. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. (coughs) So they eat. They toss the rest of their wheat into the sea. At daybreak, they raise the foresail. They ditch their anchors and they break for land. But of course, there has to be one more twist. They hit the reef. The bow of the ship is stuck. The stern, which is the back, is, is being broken apart by the waves. And so the men swim for the shore. And after a brief scare for some of the prisoners, every person, all 276 of them, make it to shore on the island of Malta. It's a very, very exciting and interesting tale that's narrated for us, but what are we supposed to think about this account? Why is it here, and why did Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, record this event for our instruction? I want to use the next 20 minutes or so that we have together to draw out three lessons from the shipwreck. That's our title this morning, lessons from the shipwreck. And there are three lessons that I think that we can learn from this, that the Lord would have us see: first, a lesson for readers; second, a lesson for leaders; and third, a lesson for sufferers. First, a lesson for readers. You know, one of the things that jumps out immediately, first, about this text is is the immensity of the detail that's contained in it. And it's really easy for us. If we could, could we just be honest for a second, I know this is church, but let's be honest about this. It's really easy to see all the names and numbers and dates and details in a text, and just sort of gloss over it, isn't it? Isn't it easy to say, well, let me just get to like the practical, helpful stuff. There's part of us when we read a text like this that says, couldn't Luke have just said they put Paul on a ship for Rome and they shipwrecked on Malta? There you go. That's a lot tidier and quicker than spending 44 verses narrating what's taken place. But here's the thing we need to see this morning. It's important that these details are here. And why is that? Because this event really happened. It actually took place. And and the details in this text add veracity. They add trustworthiness to the account. And I just want to encourage you, as you read uh, these sorts of narrative and you come to this kind of detail, just remind yourself, take that opportunity to remind yourself, this helps me have confidence that this is true. That's our first lesson. The lesson for readers is this. Scripture is trustworthy history. Scripture is trustworthy history. Luke puts all sorts of seemingly insignificant details into his account. He says there's 276 people on the ship. He mentions that they're traveling with Aristarchus, who is not important to the story in any way. He employs all of this nautical technical jargon And language to describe their efforts to secure the ship in the storm. They're throwing the cargo and the tackle overboard. It says they're using supports to undergird the ship, which means they were wrapping cables around the hull and winching them tight to hold the ship together, which I read this week is called frapping, which sounds delicious. (laughs) But it sounds like it's really not, but it sort of sounds like it is. Anyway, they're taking soundings, which is it's a way to measure depth. They would take a, 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 a long cable with a, with a weight on the bottom of it or a pole and drop it in the water to see how deep the water was beneath them. And, and here's the thing. I don't know anything about sailing. But we have to remember that, that in the culture of this day, the culture that Luke is writing to, they would have been very familiar with the sailing practices of that time. Their commerce and industry was so dependent upon upon sailing to transport goods around that region. And this level of detail would have been familiar with them, and it would have resonated very deeply with them. And it would have shown them that this story actually took place. This account is trustworthy. You know, there, there are some other places in the New Testament where this sort of detail is monumentally important. I want to draw your attention to just two of them briefly. First, in Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion, Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we read this. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, why did Mark decide that it was important to include that Simon was of Cyrene? Why did he see it as important to name Simon at all? Here's an even better question. Why does Mark mention his sons? They're not there they don't matter in the story. They never appear later in Scripture. So why are they mentioned? The answer is, Mark is making an appeal to you to fact check his account. It's like, it's like putting a footnote in a book. He's saying, this event happened. And you want to know how you can know? There was a guy there. His name was Simon. Not just any Simon. Simon of Cyrene. And maybe you don't know Simon, but maybe you know his boys, Rufus and Alexander. Alexander. Mark is saying Jesus was crucified. This event happened. Simon was there. He can testify to it. And his sons can testify that their father was there because it was true. A second example, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures." that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The point Paul is making here is that after his resurrection, Jesus didn't remain hidden until his ascension. In fact, he appeared first to Cephas, then to the 12, and then to a group of 500 brothers at one time. And Paul is saying, You don't have to take our word for it. There's 500 people who saw him. And most of them are still alive. You can go and ask them. The point Paul is underscoring with this detail is that the resurrection happened. It is a verifiable fact. And these details help to verify and to testify to the truthfulness of what we've heard. You know, I have a a really dear friend who I've been sharing the gospel with for a really long time, and we were having a conversation recently where he said to me, man, like, you know, I've read the gospel accounts in the Bible, and I just, I honestly, man, I just don't think it could have gone down like that. It just seems more plausible to me that the disciples made up the story that Jesus rose from the dead. That seems more believable to me. And I looked at him and said, man, I hear that, but what you've got to understand is given the information we have, both in Scripture and from other historical sources, that opinion that you just put forward, that takes more faith to believe than what the Scriptures plainly teach about the resurrection of Jesus. If if these teachings about Jesus' resurrection weren't true, they could have been easily debunked in the first century. You know, the disciples, when they began preaching the resurrection of Jesus, they didn't go off to a, a, a distant place. They started preaching In Jerusalem, right where Jesus had been buried. This story would not have survived if it could have been debunked. But it wasn't debunked. Why? Because it was true. N.T. Wright says, There were many messianic movements in the first century. And in every case, the would-be Messiah got crucified by Rome, as Jesus did. And in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better but that wasn't true of the disciples of Jesus was it what did peter say in second peter 1:16 he says for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our lord jesus christ but we were what i witnesses to his majesty the new testament accounts are full of these details that could only come from eye witnesses and the disciples Guys, just know this. The disciples were absolutely convinced that Jesus was resurrected from the dead because they saw him. And his resurrection was something that most of them gave their life for eventually. Rather than recant their testimony of Christ risen from the dead, they gave their lives. Scripture is a trustworthy history. And the details in the text give us confidence that it's true. But let's keep digging. Let's dig a little bit deeper and find two additional lessons we can learn. Our second lesson is a lesson for leaders. Just about every Christian is leading in some way, in some context, whether it's in the church as an elder or a fellowship group leader, or um, in the home as a parent, or in just one-to-one discipleship where you're leading younger Christians. Um, and their progress in the faith. And Paul is such a compelling example for so many things, but I I want to glance in here uh, to see what we can learn about leadership from his words and actions in this narrative. And the lesson for leaders is this. Leaders need integrity and courage. Leaders need integrity and courage. You know, Paul was clearly known as a man of integrity, a man who was trustworthy. In verse 3, I think this is really interesting. On the first day, after the first day of sailing, they put in at Sidon in port, and Julius the centurion lets Paul off the ship to go and visit his friends to be cared for. Remember remember Paul's status on the ship now. Paul is one of of many prisoners, and it's likely that, that a great number of those prisoners were headed to Rome for the purpose of facing their own execution. But a day into the journey, Julius says, sure, Paul, go ahead. Go visit your friends, go get some home visitation, get, fe- get fed, get prayed over. We've got to understand how noteworthy this is. Any idea what happened to a Roman soldier who lost a prisoner that was in his charge? Any idea? He was executed. He was executed. Remember the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16? Uh, Paul and Silas are in jail singing hymns and God sends an earthquake. And the doors of the jail are open and the shackles of the prisoners are Fall off, And the Roman centurion wakes up, or the Philippian jailer, excuse me, wakes up, and what's the first thing that he does? He draws his sword to kill himself. And Paul has to stop him and say, listen, wait, 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 we're all, we're all here. We're all here. You haven't lost anyone in your charge. You know, this is the subtext in, in, in verse 42 where it says that the soldiers were planning on killing the prisoners lest one of them escape. This isn't vindictive or conniving, really. It's, it's about self-preservation. They knew the cost that they would have to pay if they lost even one of those prisoners so knowing that how much did julius have to trust paul to let him off the ship how confident did julius have to be that he wasn't going to take that opportunity to make a break for it paul had integrity leaders must have integrity they must be trustworthy as the world is is aching families are aching young Converts are aching. Churches are aching. And unbelievers are aching for leaders who will walk in integrity. Men and women who can be trusted to do what's right. And Paul was that sort of leader. Leaders need integrity, but leaders also need courage. You know, I love how Paul boards the ship as the lowest possible guy on the org chart, right? But by the end of the journey, he is absolutely running that show. And this happens Mostly because Paul has courage and strength of his convictions to speak. Paul speaks three times on the ship. And his three interventions illustrate the courage that Paul had as a leader. Paul speaks for the first time in verse 10 when he says, Don't leave fair havens. This this is foolish. Even from Paul's low place on the ship, he had the courage to say what needed to be said. Because a leader can't stand idly by as his people are headed toward Destruction. A leader has to speak up for what's true. There's a story I love about a man who became the uh, president of a seminary that had for many years been trending in a very liberal direction theologically. And immediately after taking his office, this man began to institute reforms and to courageously call the faculty and administration and, and students toward biblical faithfulness. And as the story goes, early on in his tenure, he gave an address where he held up and defended and extolled the beauty of biblical truth, how trustworthy it is. And as soon as he was done, as he stepped off the stage, he was confronted by an older faculty member at the seminary who said to his president, that was a ridiculous thing for you to say. We are far too sophisticated epistemologically to believe that. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is only in the eye of the beholder. And you, sir, should be ashamed of yourself Academically, to which the president, very adroitly, possibly under the uh, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, replied, you're fired. (laughs) The older, older faculty member immediately shot back, you can't do that. I have a contract. And the president answered, you're right, and you have just shown yourself to be a hypocrite. Because you understand that words have meaning. And so that your contract has meaning between you and I that can't be set aside. That truth is not in the eye of of the beholder. It is not relative. Words have meaning. And the same is true about the Word of God. And that seminary some 25 or so years later today is now known as a bastion of biblical faithfulness and fidelity. In large part because of This man's courage to contend for the truth. Leaders must have courage. Now, of course, the ship's commanders ignore Paul's advice and they sail straight into disaster. But in the hopelessness of their situation, Paul has an opportunity to demonstrate his courage a second time. In verse 21, just as all hope is abandoned, Paul stands up and he says, you shouldn't have gone. But then he says this, he encourages them. Take heart, there will be no loss of life among you, for this very night, there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, "Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar, And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be as exact, it will be as, exactly as I have been told. You know, when everyone else is despairing, Paul has the courage to encourage. He courageously holds fast to his confidence in Christ, and he encourages the other men, the other sufferers in their darkest hour. I just love the faith that Paul demonstrates here. You know, the leader is the one who stands up when everything is falling apart and points people to the person and promises of Jesus. He does the same thing in verse 33. The men haven't eaten in two weeks, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of Necessity, perhaps out of just like seasickness. But Paul says, Eat and be strengthened. It's gonna be okay. Not a hair is gonna perish from your head. Jesus told me so. You know, this is this is most of what Christian ministry is. I really believe. Whether it's whether we're talking about pastoral ministry or just life on life ministry in community, ministry is having the courage to point people to Jesus in every circumstance. To point people toward his promises and his warnings when people are persisting in sin. To point them to his nearness and his goodness when people have been brought low. Leaders need integrity and leaders need courage. And that brings us to our our last lesson, our third lesson. That's a lesson for sufferers. D.A. Carson says that all you have to do is live long enough and you'll suffer. You'll be a part of this group. And the last lesson that I want us to see here is this. In suffering, don't forget to whom you belong. We read it a minute ago. I want us to read it again. Verse 23 through 25. Paul's speaking to the men and he says this. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said... Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. What's the source of Paul's confidence? What's the source of his strength, his integrity, his courage, his willingness to speak words of comfort and hope in the midst of great adversity? Paul knew who he was. Because Paul knew whose he was. Paul knew that he belonged to Jesus and that Jesus' purposes cannot be thwarted. And so the ship's breaking apart, but Paul's comforting people because God had promised him Rome. Paul gets to Malta in in chapter 28. He's going to be bitten by a viper, and all the people are going to say, See, he's a murderer. He's getting his comeuppance in the end anyway. But does Paul die? No. Why? Because God had promised him Rome. In Acts chapter 23, while Paul is wasting away seemingly in prison, Acts 23, 11, it says, The following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God had promised him. And he believed it. I love the last words of of this chapter. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Just as God had promised Paul and every person on that ship that they were going to make it safely, they did. Because God is true to his word. And there is great comfort for us in our suffering in knowing that that is true. If you find yourself in a place of suffering this morning, I want to encourage you to cling to the promises of Jesus Christ to whom you belong. Everybody's got a favorite line from Amazing Grace. You want to know what mine is? It's, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures what's the lord promised you what's he promised you he's promised you the free and full forgiveness of all your sin at the expense of jesus christ he's promised you eternal life he's promised you resurrection in victory over death on the last day he's promised you that you've been born again to a living hope to an inheritance that's imperishable undefiled and unfading it's being kept in heaven for you. He's promised to guard you through faith for a salvation that's going to be revealed in the last day. And here's the thing. Maybe, maybe God hasn't promised you a specific outcome for your life like he did Paul. Maybe you would say, man, if, if God would just promise me something in the here and now, in, in my life here on earth like he did Paul, then, then, I would, then I would have strength. Then I could be comforted. Then I could trust him. Maybe God hasn't promised you that, but please hear this. He's promised you something so much better than that. He's promised you the best thing he could give you, and that is himself. In this life and in the life to come. A number of you have followed the story of Kara Tippetts, who who recently passed away from cancer She was the wife of a church planter in Colorado. She was the mother of four small children. And she resigned her failing body just a couple of months ago. And in her last days, she reflected on her cancer as it took away her hair, her vitality, her strength, and ultimately her life at 38 years of age. Here's what she said. The world says I should be angry, that I should be shaking my fist at God. But I want to share the story that suffering isn't a mistake. And it isn't the absence of God's goodness because He is present in pain. I often want a different story than the one I've been asked to receive. But more than safety, more than comfort, more than a story of health and wealth, my deepest heart's longing is to be near to God. Listen to this. The absence of cancer is not my good. The nearness of God is my good. Beautiful, long, flowing, blonde hair is not my good. The nearness of God is my good. The abundance of stuff is not my good. The nearness of God is my good. I don't know what your point of pain is today. I don't know where you're experiencing suffering. For some of you, it's, you can identify with that because cancer is that point of pain for you. For some of you, it's, it's, it's a marriage that feels like the ship in Acts 27. It's, it's stuck on, the bow is stuck on the reef and, and the, the stern is being smashed to bits by the waves. For some of you, it's, it's financial distress or parenting failures or an ongoing struggle with a particular sin. And Here's the encouragement. Here's the lesson from this text. Please, please, weary Christian, in the midst of your suffering, Don't forget whose you are. If you are a Christian, you belong to to Jesus Christ. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The hold of God, we sang a moment ago, is stronger than we dare to hope or dream.